Hello and welcome from me, Matthew McGee, a journalist at professional services firm Pinsent Masons, to Brain Food for General Counsel, a podcast that asks the big questions that help you understand the world and steer your organisation through it. And they don't come much bigger than this. What is the global financial system for? What purpose is served by those acronym-heavy bodies that sit in the very deep background of the financial world? You might think to process payments, to enable trade, to make capitalism work. But you'd be wrong. It turns out the likes of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund all exist for one purpose, to create stability. We'll find out later a bit more about their creation in the shadow of the Second World War, but that purpose has remained in place since then. And even with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the main threat to global stability is no longer war in Europe, but the climate emergency. So that financial system must adapt so that it deals with the threat as it is now, not as it was 80 years ago. At least that's the view of Tom Taylor and his colleagues at Aviva Investors, one of a number of organisations promoting radical change in the way our financial world is structured to incentivise actions in the real economy, which will help keep global temperatures to a manageable level. We know that business and economics has a major role to play in addressing the climate crisis. Unless we change our buying habits, the way we make stuff, the amount of stuff we make and sell, and our expectations around economic growth itself, we simply will not meet the challenge of the climate crisis. But what Tom, and people like US Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen and former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney are saying is that this behaviour won't just happen, because it's not what our systems are set out to encourage, track and reward. The answer? change the systems. So we're going to start with an even bigger, more basic question. What exactly is the global financial system? I've been a business journalist for 25 years and I'm ashamed to say I didn't really know the right answer. So I asked Tom, who's a senior manager at Aviva Investor Sustainable Finance Centre for Excellence, to tell me. Essentially, there are three main limbs, if you like, interconnected limbs of the financial system that relate to what we call the real economy, goods produced, services given to us as members of the public and and, and consumers. Um, And those three limbs are investment, banking and insurance. All of that is regulated generally by the national central bank. The central bank will often have either a direct or a dotted line to the finance ministry. And all of those finance ministries themselves um, will um, take a steer from um, global standard setters. So all the um, securities regulators will generally be part of the International Organization of Securities Commissioners, or or IOSCO. You've got an equivalent for pensions, which is the uh, International Organization of Pension Supervisors. You've got Again, for insurance, the same International Association of Insurance um, Regulators and Supervisors. And similarly for banking, you've got the Basel Committee. And since the 2008 financial crisis, we have something called the Financial Stability Board, which brings together a lot of those central banks, finance ministries and regulators, particularly looking at financial stability. And then there are what um, some of the multilateral organisations like 
the um, International Monetary um, Fund, the OECD, um, and the World Bank. So it's a very complicated um, system, all intended to create a stable financial system. Um, but we believe needs to be reoriented to also, in link to that stability, create a more sustainable financial system. This system didn't just appear or develop organically. It was invented, and in a particular time, to meet a particular need. After the Second World War, um, in, the US hosted um, what's known as the Bretton Woods Conference, um, and that saw the creation of the International Monetary Fund and what was called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which is now part of the, of the World Bank. And that's why, because it comes from that conference, that's why um, some of those big multilateral organisations are known as the Bretton Woods institutions. And unlike um, the Versailles Treaty after World War One, which saw um, sort of, if you like, a punitive um, regime imposed on Germany that ultimately led to the rise of, um, of fascism and, and Hitler and the Second World War, the intention was to um, put in a system of government governance and global financial cooperation. So mutual interest, mutual economic interest, meant that countries wouldn't ever go to war at the scale of World War Two again. And whilst there have been conflicts in the interim, um, and of course we've got conflicts going on uh, but in Europe and in other places in the world now, we haven't had... Uh, a global conflict on that scale since that multilateral codependent and co-beneficial framework was put in place. Why is all this financial history relevant to climate? Well, it's because if we understand the motivations behind the establishment of these bodies and processes, then we might be less likely to see them just as monolithic, unchanging blocks of invisible bureaucracy and begin to see them as tools that can be used to our advantage. That means explicitly using them to change the way that capital and money and investment works in the world economy. The market is allocating capital in a way that is actually undermining the long-term future and stability of the market. And that is because the market is beset by market failures. So a market failure is... The market really exists to support society in allocating capital to where it's needed. So if you have a market failure, then um, then um, the the efficient or the or, or, or the the allocation of capital that best supports society isn't isn't happening and therefore you need corrective action and the corrective action should be taken by regulators and and governments. And that's where that architecture we talked to, talked about comes in. Because within that architecture are those with the power to direct um, how the market is corrected. So governments can do that and must do that. The biggest role here has to come from, from government. They can't just devolve dealing with the climate crisis onto financial markets. But what they can do is they can make the conditions so that finance actually is harnessed to to deliver the political aims that they've got and that they've signed up to in the Paris Agreement, which is a slightly different thing. So if they take steps to correct market failures, if it becomes 
more profitable for companies to stop polluting than it is for them to pollute, then that's what they'll do. It's kind of like follow the money. So that's why we believe reforming the way that finance is governed, is, is overseen, is an absolutely crucial part of this, this tricky conundrum that we find ourselves in. Because if money starts to flow, as the Paris Agreement, um, every, you know, 197 countries have signed up to, to part of the Paris Agreement says financial flows need to align with low greenhouse gas sustainable development. And that's not what's happening at the moment. So finding a way to close that gap through the way that finance is regulated is utterly critical. Because while government subsidy and action is really important, Vincent Mason's climate and sustainability expert Ewan McVicker says the job simply cannot be done without mobilising the massive amounts of private capital out there looking to be invested. A really you know, huge part of when we talk about the global financial system and its role in dealing with climate and sustainability issues is you know, we need to be funding um, through the private sector these initiatives the amount of private sector capital that's available dwarfs that of public sector capital that's available for these purposes. And so setting things up in a way which encourages private sector investors to get involved and direct their um, um, available capital um, to investments that will be profitable, but also help deal with climate and sustainability issues is critical. The, the Paris Agreement target requires a massive amount of capital. Um, that capital is not going to come from governments um, alone. It just sim- it simply won't. Private sector capital has to be mobilised. And I think in the context as well of the amount of uh, climate finance from developed countries' governments to be made available to the developing world did not meet the ambitions of the developing world. That's where we could start to see the role of private sector being really emphasised. And I think we see an increasing pressure on from governments and an increasing trend through regulation to make sure that the providers of private sector capital are really incentivised to be doing the right things and making money available for things that will help uh, with fighting climate change. Tom agrees and says the sums needed can be easily provided if private investment is mobilised. One of the reasons for finance being such a key part of this is that the transition that we need to make is going to require a lot of investment. So we sometimes hear that framed as being a cost, but actually I think it's better to think of it as an investment because a lot of this will actually see benefits and, and financial returns. And equally, if we don't do things, we'll see a lot of value destroyed. Given that there is 500 trillion US dollars embedded in the financial system, estimates range between probably one and five trillion dollars of investment a year between now and 2050 to make this transition work. The money's there. It's just not going to the right places at the moment. Can the financial system be used? Well, the money is embedded in the financial system. But at the moment, the incentives and the way in which that money is allocated is not aligned with a sustainable future. So as capital is being allocated, as choices are being made by banks, by insurers, by investors, 
it's not aligning with a one and a half degree world. And so finding ways to shift those incentives is absolutely crucial. Let's remind ourselves of the stakes. If we don't use every tool at our disposal, including the global financial system, to tackle the climate emergency, then the impact on all of us will be severe. Mass migration as people move from areas no longer fit for human habitation. Disruption to food supplies, flooding and extreme weather. Life on Earth will be fundamentally altered. The climate crisis is an enormous global security risk. We're going to see social impacts. So we've seen extreme heat in, for example, India and Pakistan over the last few weeks. Temperatures touching 50 degrees centigrade. And at that temperature, the human body outside can't function. It's too hot for us to cool our bodies via sweating and and the body starts to shut down. And in a lot of countries, it's just not feasible to avoid the midday sun. You don't have air-conditioned buildings to go into. And so ultimately, if that happened regularly, people are going to have to, to move where they live. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the Climate Scientists' latest report, estimate that under a business-as-usual scenario, if we don't change course, 75% of the world's population will be exposed to life-threatening climatic conditions by the end of the century. So if you have to move 75% of the world's population to somewhere else, there is clearly going to be um, huge instability. So as well as the, um, if you like, the moral reasons for, for, for addressing climate change, the economic reasons for, for addressing climate change, from a pure stability avoiding future wars point of view, changing course is an absolute imperative because there, there, there isn't going to be a realistic way to avoid wars if 75% of the world's population are, are, are moving. Some of the biggest voices in finance are now speaking out to encourage structural change to direct investment towards climate solutions, including former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney and US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. So what is the mechanism that will bring this change to bear on the financial system? How will it actually happen? Relatively informal groupings of rich nations will be the key, says Tom. Finance will take its lead from those who regulate it, and that will shift the system. At the moment, it's, it's no, nobody's job. Nobody specifically is told, you know, if we're not aligning the financial system with one and a half degrees, who isn't doing their job? And that job, therefore, needs to be given to these big organisations. And in, in, in the main, they take their lead from the G20 countries, so the 20 biggest global economies. So, for example, the FSB being set up after the 2008 financial crisis, that was set up using the, the power of the G20 um, governments and the TCFD, so the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which has pretty much become the gold standard for how companies and finance report on on their, their climate-related financial risks. That, again, that came from a G20 communique saying the FSB should look at disclosure, and so it did so. So getting the the biggest governments to say to these regulators, yes, we need you to change what you're doing, review how you're governing finance and, and make it more closely aligned to, to one and a half degrees is, is really important. 
These changes will filter down into the organisations businesses and consumers deal with, investment and retail banks. Ewan says that the financial services industry will be used as an engine for change. There's a number of programmes underway um, where financial institutions can uh, take different steps um, uh, 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 to help align with that 1.5 degree target. And a large part of that will be making available capital in the developing world for the transition activities that need to be financed. It perhaps seems unlikely that the climate finance ambitions um, of developing countries will be met through handouts from the developed world, particularly as we enter a a period of um, uh, economic difficulty on a global basis. Um, The pressures on um, developed world economies are going to continue to grow and I think the making available of government finance to solve some of these problems is going to remain um, a sticking point. So the private sector has a big role to play and we definitely see governments and international institutions almost making the financial services sector the policeman for the climate change agenda. Um, and by regulation, um, an increase in transparency requirements being imposed on them, asking them to do that heavy lifting on climate change. This might involve creating new ways of investing or even entire new organisations to generate the change that is needed. Ewan worked for one of those, the UK's Green Investment Bank, and says that they have an important and evolving role in directing investment, but also in proving that this can deliver returns to investors. The Green Investment Bank was set up as a policy device to help um, uh, deal with um, perceived lack of liquidity in financial markets following the financial crash of 2008 and the the consequent ripples of that crash um, and a lack of liquidity in um, the uh, finance market for green infrastructure of various sorts. And as a a policy instrument, the bank was set up to make funds available under certain circumstances. Um, But fortunately, it was set up in a way um, that it was able to invest anywhere within the capital structure because it became clear um, that actually um, the main issue was not availability of senior debt because international banks bounced back quicker than people expected them to, but it was actually a lack of equity because equity investors uh, were not comfortable with the risks around this emerging asset class of, of, of offshore wind. The demonstration impact is the other aspect because the bank had to operate in a way where it was uh, making um, good commercial sound investments on the same terms as commercial investors would were they in the market. Um, and that was twofold, once to comply with state aid rules, but also to show um, to the market that these investments were good, um, sensible commercial investments that would make a profit um, and therefore to encourage and crowd more capital into those markets and to have a demonstrator effect um, in, in, in the market. This isn't to say that governments are off the hook for climate action, though. They are critical agents for mobilising private finance to act. Governments need to create the conditions under which the financial system accepts responsibility for action. And to do this, they need to work together, says Tom. It's, it's, it's all hands on deck, in essence. You know, there is no point in one country um, happily saying, well, we're carbon neutral, 
because greenhouse gases don't respect borders, global warming doesn't respect borders. Um, so it is a we're all in this together um, type type situation. We need global cooperation at the political level. It, we also, as a as regulated businesses, hugely react to the signals that we get from from regulators in terms of how we should behave. And we're already seeing some of this sort of within the the mandates that the regulators have. So the regulators have said, you know, that regulated firms in finance need to address climate-related risks in the way that they manage their business, for example. Although that's sort of happening, it's not happening at the pace that it is needed, and it's also not aligned with a, a mandate given to those regulators say we need you to regulate the financial system so that we end up with a financial system that is aligning with the net zero transition that's at the moment not written into what their job is so governments have signed up at the international treaty level in the paris agreement say we will align financial flows the next bit that they haven't done and that we think they should do is say to these multilateral institutions and regulators we need you to help us fulfil our commitments because, as you say, finance is global, governed globally as well. And so put into the mandates of those regulators and multilateral organisations, part of your job is moving us towards that one and a half degree future. And if that suddenly becomes a core part of their, their mandate, as opposed to something they do a little bit off the side of their desk, then finance will take its lead from those who regulate it and that will shift the system. One of the most successful tools being used is transparency. Customers, regulators and investors are increasingly demanding to know what the source of funds is and what projects it will be invested in. Ewan says that regulators are policing ever more keenly acts of greenwashing, making misleading claims that investments are ecologically sound and that behaviour is changing radically because of this. And Tom tells us that Aviva investors and others are creating bodies to promote this radical transparency, such as the International Platform for Climate Finance. That transparency around risk management is the, drive for, is the driver for change, because as institutions become more transparent about this, those who are seen as being, you know, being transparent and open and having the best processes in place will start to see the advantages of that, whereas those who are lagging behind will be seen as not having the right risk management processes in place. And if you don't have the right risk management processes in place in respect of climate risk, which is an increasingly important risk, what does that say about your overall attitude to the management of risk and what will the market make of that? So it will start to become a tag of being slightly less professional than those who are at the head of the curve. We're part of a, a coalition that we've convened that has um, you know, a lot of different types of organisations in it, financial institutions, um, think tanks, NGOs, policymakers, law firms, um, you know, who, who are all talking about these issues. So, so the, the, the group in the coalition is the Coalition for an International Platform on Climate Finance, and that exists to advocate for reform of the international financial architecture to to align it with with one and a half degrees we believe within a reformed financial architecture if you look at it there are gaps and one of the gaps is how do you help in particular developing countries access private finance at scale to help fund their sustainable development 
And so having a, a, a new body or repurposing one of the existing institutions to, to take on the role of this IPCF to provide developing countries with the insight and the technical assistance they need to finance their climate and development commitments and, and help bring them together with private finance is, is, if you like, a really, really important role that we think would be needed within a reformed and repurposed architecture. This transparency plus consumer and investor pressure is welcome and important. But to make real, lasting global change, it looks like there has to be willingness across the world to make conscious use of the structures at the heart of the financial world to counter the threat, not of war in Europe, but of the climate emergency all around the world. Thank you for joining us for the latest Brain Food for General Council podcast. Remember, you can keep up to date with hour-by-hour coverage of business law news by the Outlaw Reporting Team at vincentmasons.com. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have enjoyed this or past programmes, please do rate and review them. It helps us to reach other people who might also be interested. Until next time, goodbye. Brain Food for General Counsel was produced and presented by Matthew McGee for Vincent Masons, the purpose-led international professional services firm with law at its core.